you're listening to the Atheist Alliance International podcast with me, Andy Phillips. This is the podcast that rotates around or within the sphere of atheism, secularism, and humanism. And in the next hour, we have an interview with Arup Chatterjee, the author of the book, The Untold Story, which challenges the perceptions of Mother Teresa. Now, you may be aware of the documentary Christopher Hitchens did in the mid-90s that exposed the truth behind Mother Teresa and the home of the dining in Calcutta. Well, Arup Chatterjee was a doctor in Calcutta, a resident of Calcutta, who on his arrival in the UK in the mid-80s was completely dismayed at the way that she was perceived. Um, and the, also the deceptive view that she gave of her work and of Kyle Carter in general. He was the person who instigated the Channel 4 documentary that Hitchens ended up fronting. And we'll be going to be talking to him in about 15 minutes. But first, I want to introduce uh, the Vice President of Atheist Alliance International, which is Bill Fla- uh, Flavel, if I get it right, get my teeth in. Uh, hi, Bill. <laughs> How are you doing? How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Um, yeah. Now, I want to give a bit of an update on some of the work the organization does and some of the uh, ongoing cases, maybe, if we can talk about them, because sometimes we can't talk about them because of uh, just the problems that it could cause down the line. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the work that you do and uh, some of the others in the organization and some of the things that you're dealing with on a daily basis. Can you just give us a, a bit of a, a picture of some of the things that the organization is involved with? Yeah. You know, I, I wonder if it's a good idea to go back a step and think about what AAI is really all about. Why yeah. are we here anyway? Um, we, we're really about the right to be secular. All around the world, there are plenty of places where it's literally impossible or it's very, very hard to have no religion. Um, there are places where you can be executed for leaving your religion yeah. or for saying bad things about a religion. So although we do quite a number of things, like we help people who are in trouble, one of the things, that's the underlying thing that, if you like, the theme of AI is the right to be secular. We should all be free to have no religion if we want to. And I, and I sometimes think about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, I know that it was, this is a bit geeky, I know it was um, proclaimed on the 10th of December, 1948, now, I'm kind of cheating because I was born in the same year. So I, I won't right, so that's how you remember it. <laughs> exactly. So like the declaration, I'm 72 years old and so is the declaration. And that was a fundamental, important, modern document for human rights. Uh, the, the foundation, really, of all the human rights documents we now, we now have. Yeah. So it had said things like, important things like Article 7, we should all be equal before the law. Simple, but that's not the case at the moment because people who have no religion are in many countries treated terribly before the law. And are discriminated. I don't think people understand this though, do they, Bill? I mean, I don't think people really understand that there is the, you know, if, if you, it's like when I first joined um, Atheist Alliance International, I had a, a sort of inkling of, of some of those things that were going on, um, but I never really understood it that well because I'm, I was brought up in the UK, I was brought up C of E. You know, you can't get more mild than that. And I've never really been a a theist. I've always been an atheist. And, you know, you you don't realise that there are, or it doesn't really sort of come over to you very easily, that there are places in the the world that it is 
a danger to your life yeah to just not believe in something supernatural which seems completely bloody bizarre to it's me crazy yeah so for example in saudi arabia it is actually a terrorist offense to be an atheist so get your mind around that but this, this is the problem. I can't get my mind around it. I don't understand why it is such a problem, apart from that it will they they may think it breaks down society somehow. Yeah, I think that's it. That's the, that's the biggest thing for us, isn't it? You know, the right to be secular is that there's a movement. If you go onto the Atheist Alliance International uh, website, um, uh, you'll find the right to be secular uh, stuff on there, and you can join up to it, can't you? Yeah. So the the thing about the uh, the Universal Declaration is Article 18 gave us freedom of thought and uh, conscience and religion, and Article 19 gave us freedom of expression. So that declaration throughout it protects the right to be religious. And that's right. We totally agree with that. We you know you need to have a right to be religious, and that right has to be protected. But nowhere does it say there's a right to not be religious. And I think that's where the problem comes in. There right. are countries where you have to have your religion on your birth certificate on the day you're born. So before you can think, before you can speak, you become a Muslim or a Christian or whatever. Um, so we think there should be a right, explicitly a right to be non-religious. And we have a campaign that we call the right to be secular. And at the moment, we're in the early stages of that campaign, campaign we're just trying to uh, make people aware. Uh, we're trying to generate support publicly for that. And the next stage, we'll be starting to um, canvas support within the organisations such as the United Nations, the European Commission on Human Rights, the African Commission on Peoples and uh, Human Rights. So we're going to those kind of bodies because we need some kind of actual declaration that you do have a right to be secular non-religious it does seem that, that, that it's it's such a hole in that whole that whole legislation that there's there's no right to just not to believe in something you know it just makes it just makes a mockery of of uh of reality just don't yeah. get it at all so it, but if you go to the uh the atheist alliance international um website which is atheistalliance.org uh, have a look at campaigns, and the very first one in there is the the right to be secular. Uh, take a look at it and have a look at what you, you need to do. But if you can join in with that, then that would be fantastic. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the some of the things that you do, some of the work that you do um, in blasphemy law, because blasphemy law is 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 sort of big at the moment, uh, especially in some parts of the world. Yeah. Well, as I said. Um... Article 19 is of the Universal Declaration is about freedom of expression. And that should mean that if we have an opinion, we should be free to express it. But that's not the case in some places. And where we're doing the most work at the moment, or I personally am doing the most work, is in Nigeria. Um, you may know that the 12 northern states in Nigeria are overwhelmingly Muslim, and the southern states are overwhelmingly Christian. The country as a whole is hugely religious with about 97% of the people saying religion is important to them in their everyday lives. Right. Um, so we've had a few cases now coming up in, in uh, particularly in Kano State in northern Nigeria. 
And the first one was a young man, 23 years old. He was a musician and he said some things on a WhatsApp chat that people took exception to. And he was taken before the courts. And on the 10th of August this year, he was found guilty of blasphemy and he was sentenced to death by that court. Now, it isn't just the fact that blasphemy is, is a ridiculous thing to charge anyone with. Um, it is the fact that at the throughout the whole case, this poor gentleman, his name is Yahaya, Amin, uh, Sharif Aminu, he had no legal support. He was not allowed to see his family. He had to manage on his own. He was sentenced to death. He still kept incommunicado. Um, so that means his chances of having someone launch an appeal for him was close to zero. Um, he had 30 days. They gave him, incidentally, you're supposed to get 90 days in Nigerian law, but they gave him 30 days to appeal. Um, it was obvious to us when we saw this case in the newspapers that the guy was not going to find anyone to appeal for him. And the the governor of the state was making it very clear on social media that he wanted Yahya dead. He wanted to sign the execution warrant. Um, so at that point, we decided that we should do something to help the guy. And we we know some lawyers in, in Nigeria, so we asked them to put together an appeal, which they did, and they filed it before the deadline for the appeal. We also filed um, a stay of execution. So today, Yahya is safe. However, we now have to go through the whole process of, uh, of uh, taking forward the appeal, standing up in court. The, the cases will be heard in Kano, which is an extremely hostile environment for people who are protecting people from blasphemy. Yeah. You, you've probably heard of the cases of lawyers being killed in Pakistan. Uh, if they protect people, defend people who are being accused of blasphemy. Similar things have happened in Kano. People have been beaten to death and hacked to death in the streets by mobs in Kano because they're accused of blasphemy. So very, very re much religious tension around the subject of blasphemy in Kano. Um, we have filed the appeal, but the next step is now the, we will get a date for the court case and then we will have to get lawyers there and somehow keep them safe. Right. While they argue the case against this, the sentence, there's also um, uh, a case at the moment going on of a 13 year old boy who's been sentenced to 10 years in prison. Can you give us a bit of a an update on that? Yeah, that that's a young boy called Uma Farouk, and apparently he was having an argument with a friend and says something anti God, and this was reported to the religious police. And he was taken away. I believe he was 12 when the offence or alleged offence happened. Right. But on the same day, he was found guilty of blasphemy. He was given 10 years uh, with menial labour in prison. He survived the death sentence because he's young. But it's kind of astonishing that you would sentence a 13-year-old boy to 10 years in prison for something he happened to say in the course of an argument. So we also have put in appeal against that sentence um, and we're at the same stage we we now are officially the lawyer not we but our lawyers in nigeria are officially 
the lawyers that are taking forward those two cases. Um, it looks like the governor is saying he will not give up until Yahya is executed. So if we're successful in the Court of Appeal in Kano, it will then go to the next court and eventually to the High Court. Uh, so whatever's going to happen, obviously, if we lose, we're going to appeal again. And apparently, if we win, the state will appeal again. So we expect that case. In fact, we expect both cases to go through to the high, the Supreme Court in Nigeria. Right. Now, the downside for us in that is it's going to be very expensive. And we did do an appeal from funds, which was enough for us to write the appeal and file it and uh, do all the preparations for that. But now we have the problem of prosecuting the appeals and that's going to cost more money. So I am asking people, please, if you care about these things, go to our website and there's a GoFundMe there for um, for Yahya and for Umar. And if you could possibly please just give us some money towards that, it'll be enormously helpful. Yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, the, the, all these things. I mean, we 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 do need donations. Um, and if you can donate and also become a member. Uh, that would be even better, but donations is what we uh, what we need for these sort of things because we don't earn money in any other way apart from donation. And uh, lawyers do cost, and so we do need do need your help with that. So if you can do that, it'd be absolutely fantastic. If you can go to atheistalliance.org, and uh, you can donate on the website. So because there's another issue here um, that is interesting, Andy, yeah. which is that Nigeria, although we've got twelve states which are Islamic and the remaining states which are Christian, they have a secular constitution. Yeah. They have a constitution which is very similar in many ways to the United States Constitution. Uh, it is not permissible for a state to adopt a state religion. Um, but it's very clear that in the northern states where they have adopted Sharia as a criminal law um, code, they have adopted Islam as a state religion. And it, that is illegal. It's an unconstitutional. What's what's the sort of uh, the other sort of pressure that uh, either we as an organisation, atheists in general, or secularists or humanists in general, or just anybody who cares about this sort of thing? You know, you can be a theist and and be a completely against this sort of thing, blasphemy law and stuff like that. You know, in this sort of situation, um, what sort of things can can people do to maybe put pressure on on the the Nigerian government? Well, they can put Nigerians, of course, can put pressure on their representatives in Parliament or, and Senate. So they can do that. They can talk about it in the newspapers. But you know what? This is a religious issue. Mm. And quite honestly, once you get into religion, reason goes out of the window very often. So people are defending their religion. They're not necessarily defending their actions legally because they can't. Yeah. The, almost everything that happened to these two boys is is not legal in, in terms of the constitution, but it is legal in terms of the Sharia law, which they have in Kano. But if the constitution says that things in Sharia law are illegal, then Sharia law should not be used. Yeah, and, and, and but there's no, there doesn't seem to be any consequence to uh, this sort of action at all. There's no consequence yeah. from the from the government, is there? Well, I think that one of the problems is that it is a very religious country and the constitution is abused not just by the Muslim states, but also by the Christian states. 
Yeah, so you yeah. there's another case that we're also fighting, which is a case in um, a Koibum state where the governor has invested millions of public money or was intending to, billions of public money into a huge cathedral. Um, that You can't do that in Nigeria. It's a secular country. States cannot support religions. Um, so we're prosecuting that case as well. That's been held up because of coronavirus, but hopefully we'll get back to that soon. Um, so it's the situation really is the Christians don't want to challenge the Muslims and the Muslims don't want to challenge the Christians because they're all at it. They're all breaking the constitution. So it's like a, an old boys club where, well, we won't report you if you don't report us. That's how I see it anyway. It's mad. It's mad. Anyway, listen, but we, we, we've, uh, we've hit our time and, uh, we're going to do this on a regular basis, sort of few few updates and talking about um, sort of building a secular world and the sort of things we can do to help that. Uh, so for the moment, thanks very much. Thanks, Andy. Take care. Now it's time to introduce my very, very special guest. This is Arup Chatterjee, the author of the book, The Untold Story, which challenges the perceptions of Mother Teresa. Hi, Arup. How are you doing? Hello. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks. I'm really good. I'm really good. Um it's really good to see you. Uh, really great to have you on the podcast. And uh, one of the things I wanted to do straight away was sort of uh, congratulate you for, for uh, uh, or thank you, in fact, for being um, part of our advisory council. Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, there's a group of really, really cool people that uh, uh, work along with us. And uh, it's I'm really great cool, to have you on board. I'm no way I'm cool. <laughs> you are cool. <laughs> you are cool. What are you talking about? Um, in the introduction I did, um, yeah. I spoke a little bit about uh, the this concept of Mother Teresa and uh, the uh, the stuff that went on at the time um, with in '93 when Christopher Hitchens sort of uh, came out with that uh, that documentary and uh, pointed out quite rightly that you was the person who really was the catalyst to all that. Um, yes. So, what was what was the the sort of uh, the backstory of that? What brought you to that point? Uh, the backstory was uh, after having come to UK in 1985. As I have said many times, I had little interest in Mother Teresa, and what interest I had was entirely positive. I thought that she was a small scale operator in a bit, very big country, and she was doing something, i.e., feeding 50 people a day and you know looking after a few orphans here and there. But when I came to UK, I realized that she was telling bombastic lies. And every time I said to anybody that I was in Kakara, they were actually horrified. They expected somebody to be without limbs and, you know, with leprosy, with nose and falling off their faces and things right. like that. And so I looked into her, all her ramblings, and I realized that all the lies actually came from her. So then I, uh, I thought, was I became convinced more and more in the... So this... A realization came in about 1987, 88. So from then on, I became uh, quite obsessed that I had to do something about it. Yeah, so well, in 1993, February, yeah. I went uh, I went to Tariq Ali's production company called Bangdung Production. It's folded up now. It doesn't exist anymore. Tariq Ali didn't pick up the phone. Uh, his uh, assistant did, an American woman, woman called Vania. So I I told her in about ten minutes what my project what my idea was to do a film about Mother Teresa and her lies and her uh, actual work. So she said it looks like a good good piece of uh, 
um, something that they might do. So can I send them a proposal on a, an A4 sheet? So these were fax days, and I was quite into faxes in those days. So yeah, I think what people forget is pre-internet, isn't it? And, uh, and it's, it's still like I still like the fax, but unfortunately, it's not used anymore. I'm still a fax uh, uh, devotee, but anyway, so I, I wrote it up, typed it, and faxed it to her. And it's pre-internet, so no email. Sorry, yeah. And she came back and said, "Yeah, idea is good. So I'm going to send it to Channel 4's commissioning editor. Uh, sorry, uh, Channel 4's commissioning editor, Valdemar Januszczak. He's still around, actually. He's quite a cultural icon in UK still." So uh, in about a week, the uh, the answer came from Valdemar Januszczak, who was then at Channel 4, that it's fine, we will do a film, but we'll give you £30,000 for the film. I didn't get a single penny, by the way, make it very clear, which means 1000 per minute is the, uh, apparently that was the expenses in those days. But that would preclude traveling to any, any other place. It has to be entirely studio-based production. So yeah, that was that was good. That was that. So Anya said that she knew somebody called Christopher Hitchens. I have to admit that I hadn't heard of him at the time. Obviously, uh, I was quite young then, and I wasn't an active atheist or anything like that. So, uh, I, well, I wasn't an inactive atheist, but I wasn't an active atheist. So anyway, so she said that I, she knew Christopher Hitchens from uh, the in the magazine Nation. They worked both of them together on it, and. Uh, uh, she would ask him to present the film because he's he's, he's quite um, quite a intense presenter, and also the fact that he had written uh, something on Mother Teresa in 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 the past, which was which was quite uh, um, neutral but critical. So so he was asked to present the film. We did all the research and gave the gave the materials to Christopher Hitchens, and he wrote it up and presented it. So that's the and the and the film was broadcast. It was called Hell's Angel, which wasn't my idea. I wanted to call it Mother of All Myths, but uh, he, I think he chose the title, and he presented it. And uh, that's that's the story backstory. And the film was is they started doing it in March, I think, uh, ninety three, and the and the film film was shown in December. And that's the backstory of that. And then so, Hitchens wrote a book. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I was just going to say, so, so when you come over in 85, um, what was your actual feeling of that? Because you you had, you say you had a, 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 a sort of, Mother Teresa was on the radar for you. Just, uh, I, I think I would say under the radar. And I wasn't unique. Uh, as I said, I'm, I, you know, I, I grew up in a left, non-believing family. Uh, there was no talk about Mother Teresa being positive or negative, and all my I, I have gone back and asked all my friends in my middle class milieu. Every single person said the same thing that they they had no interest, no positive, no negative Mother Teresa. Obviously, many of my friends went to these uh, convent schools because they are uh, missionary-run schools, quite expensive, and um, um, they are very desirable in the indian subcontinent at least in india because you you can you can you when you go if you go there you get a panache and a, a polish and you learn to speak english very well i couldn't actually i couldn't speak english when i arrived in uk i knew english to a high standard but i couldn't speak it 
Right. So I went to a, I went to a standard school, but all my friends who uh, from my class people would probably go to a convent school, uh, and uh, and those people those boys uh, and girls said that they had heard of Mother Teresa much more than I had, but again they didn't have any interest in her or they, they didn't really know what she was doing, but they had they had much more uh, uh, awareness of her than I had. So, so when you when you come over in eighty five and you saw that the, the the type of image that Mother Teresa was being portrayed as, and what she yeah. portrayed, but also what the media in the West and in the UK specifically was portraying of her, yeah. what was your opinion of that? How did that? What what struck you about that? Well, it was I was thunderstruck, and um, as a matter of fact, when I read some magazines or read a, a novel. Uh, I came across this metaphor, oh, such and such would try the patience of Mother Teresa. Such and such is poop as pure as Mother Teresa. Mother yeah. Teresa would have been such and, you know. And then also in the opposite token, Calcutta would be also used as a metaphor. Oh, we don't want New York to become Calcutta. And I, I, to be honest with you, in the beginning, a couple of years, I didn't even understand what they were talking about. And I said, well, you know, it sounds a bit odd. Why, why, why are they using these metaphors? Then I realized that how disgusting Calcutta has become, had become in the imagery and how supreme and noble Mother Teresa had become. So gradually... Was, I, was it because of her? Was it because of yeah. the way she, that uh, she was being reported? And, yes, and... yes, absolutely, absolutely because of right. her. And uh, in the United States, when I read U.S. Uh, magazines or U.S. novels or even watched Hollywood films, these... Uh, Metaphors were even more frequent and more intense. In UK, not so, but still, it happened. Yeah, because I, I mean, I, when I grew up, um, I can remember people saying uh, things like, you know, if, if you ask someone to do something and uh, yes. it, it was a char charitable thing or seemed like a charitable thing, you'd, you'd say something like, what, "Who am I, Mother Teresa?" Exactly. <laughs> so it's it's become sort of a, sort of a cultural. Um, yes phrase that a figure is of, figure of speech yeah it's just a figure of speech you know it's, yeah. it's just such a strange thing so and th so it, it's really for you it was it wasn't just that mother Teresa was being lauded as some sort of saintly figure but it was the 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 the, the concept that it was putting calcutta down as well yeah yeah my birthplace and where i you know I, the only place india had known actually mm. to be honest with you because india is a big place and although we in people in Calcutta do travel a lot, unlike other people, other parts, unlike people in other parts of India. But we are very uh, parochial people in a sense that India is not. I mean, I'd be vilified by Indians for saying this, but it's not quite one country. It's very many different nations fighting with each other. Yeah. Now pretending to be great Hindu nationalists, but so I, I personally had no interest in other parts of India, in the no loyalty, so that no loyalty in other parts of India except to Calcutta and. And to find my birthplace being vilified in in such a brutal fashion, really hurt me. And what I mean, when uh, the the actual um, the show came out, the Hell's oh. Angel show yeah. came yeah. out. What was what was your feeling about that? And it, was it the sort of film that you wanted? Well, I never watched it in one sitting. Sitting down, it was very well presented. I must say, Hitchens presented it quite intensely. But it's okay. I mean, to do it in a studio, and do and they covered a lot of ground. I didn't mind it at all. And I, what I did like was it actually opened the discussion. Yeah, yeah. 
Because Hitchens can be quite incendiary sometimes, can't he? Yeah, I think he. I think he was. He was a bit restrained, a bit incendiary. He was. A, he, he struck a good chord. But saying that, uh, there was a. There is an author called Mary Loudon, a novelist, and a, I think non she writes nonfiction as well. Two or two or three years before Hitchens, she wrote a very very strong piece in the Observer about Mother Teresa right. having worked there, and she said that. Look, I went to India to Calcutta especially to work for this lady because I heard so much about her and about her charity. And I just couldn't believe how disgusting the whole thing was and how brutal it was. But unfortunately, nobody took any notice of it. Yeah, because I think um, the, the, this this whole thing about um, uh, Mother Teresa's sort of status, I mean, you see her with, you know, kings and... Uh, indeed politicians and all that sort of thing you know is it, she was he was i mean she was with um uh princess diana you know it's like you know I mean, it's numerous like times, numerous people times. you know she was very uh she was great friends of ronald reagan i think in the white house reagan white house there was a special bedroom earmarked for her right and and there was a special entrance for her she didn't just go through the uh, regular entrance and they came together because both were very strong anti-abortionists so and Reagan had this uh, obsession that abortion had to be banned in the world, and obviously Mother Teresa had the same thing. And they they were the Catholic great way. buddies, great greatest of buddies. Yeah, it's, it's so your book, um, the Unsold Story. Yeah. When you started to, uh, well, when did you start thinking about putting a book together about uh, 1995, 96, 94, I think, 94. So and yeah. So, and yeah, and and I know that you know. I mean, I've read the book, and and it is, it's quite, um, it's quite revealing because, as I say, at the time when I when I uh, grew up, Mother Teresa was was held up as a saintly figure. Um, consequently, she became <laughs> became a saint. Uh, yeah. And, and you, know, you had something to do with that. I want to go into that as well because that's that's really fascinating as well. But um, when you was when you started putting that book together, because when did it come out? It came out sort of two thousand. Or something. No, like it had uh, 2003. Yeah, quite right. That that, that had a different uh, title. Mother Teresa, the um, what was it called again? No, the final verdict. That final one. verdict. Sorry, yeah. And then the new edition with the new publishers until story. Correct. Yeah, because uh, it's and, but with with when you started uh, sort of going through that book and and doing the research for it again, we're talking sort of pre-internet days. It's not like you could just sit there. It was and very difficult. Google everything, you know, you had to go. Very interesting, but very difficult. That yeah. information, didn't you? Mm. I had to spend hours and days in libraries and go all through the world, you know, actually travel the world and, um, you know, interview hundreds and hundreds of people. So, and, and interview people on camera, on the streets, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't, it was fun. I wouldn't really do it now, but uh, I did it at the time and I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah. It's a bit of a young man's game and it's sort of trotting around the world. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. But what sort of came out of that? What was what was the stories about things like for the the home for the dying and stuff like that in Calcutta? Well, the thing is, I all, all I knew about it. The home for the dying was actually the home for the killing because there was nothing remotely uh, charitable or kind about the place. You know, uh, it's slightly better now. At least there's some running water and etc. But in those days, there were uh, there were no beds even. Uh, there still aren't any beds. There are hammocks. Yeah. First World War hammocks uh, covered in a threadbare sheet, and um, the residents is only hundred of them, ninety in the uh, men section, ninety in the female section, and they're often half full. So you're looking, 
you are thinking about think about only 60 people in the place and they they the the, the so-called care they get is absolutely unbelievable um they and they are not even allowed to get up and walk to stretch their limbs i mean they are they really uh, they, there was a regime there was a man called anthony who was a who was an overseer in that place and who used to even hit them to make them uh, lie down on the beds uh, the uh, under, when mother teresa was alive it was the rule that needles had to be reused and gloves had to be reused in order to bring them closer to jesus not that they were using so many needles you know very few people needed needles but whatever they needed had to be reused the food was uh, uh, average it was adequate there was communal toilet they had to often defecate in in view of each other it's uh, it's unbelievable now it's much better at least they have built walls little partitions in the toilet so that people don't have to see each other when they're doing it and in the women section as soon as the women came in they they, they were grabbed and the hair was shaved because the women obviously often carried lice and they didn't even want to give them lice treatment so the uh, so the treatment was just grab you and then shave your hair without even asking you whether you wanted or not so there was a, like um, a facade of care it wasn't even a facade i mean i don't know why people when people went back obviously somebody some people like mary loudon and one or two other people they really made made some noise but most people just it was the emperor's old clothes emperor's new clothes they just kept quiet and they thought it was probably the greatest thing although they they they, they were obviously very shocked another another of mother teresa's big lies is that she gave everybody a a good funeral according to the religion complete nonsense she had no part in the in the disposal of the bodies the bodies were kept in a very dimly lit um a warmish morgue for a while and then they're giving over to the kakata corporation who disposed of the bodies by crem- everybody is cremated anyway it still is and mother teresa went around the world many many times saying that i'm so respected for other religions when people come to the home for the dying i make sure that they get their funeral in their own religion as a matter of fact no even before the funeral anyway most people didn't die there they just came in and came out before the funeral if a hindu person had a, a image of a god or a goddess on his little on the on the side of his bed on the floor the nuns would come and remove it because they weren't allowed to have any non christian imagery in that place so this is the brutality of the uh, of the of the regime and then mother teresa converted uh, people who were unconscious by stealth uh, she she had instructions to nuns to if when people are dying and they're semi conscious go to them and say say to them this is a code it's a code word i do you want to enter the heavens through st peter's and they would say everybody said yes and then that was a conversion they sprinkled some water and then she would send the uh, send the uh, number you know so the so you had you had one more uh, convert and then it's a, a brownie point for vatican for your uh, so this is what this is what sort of you know blew me away when i when i read your book and also you know have, have read up about a lot of the stuff um about- it's actually heinous to have to to exploit vulnerable people like that yeah 
it's quite because her, her her reasons for doing this was not to alleviate poverty or to uh yeah. to help those people it was it was she was working for the church and she was working to yeah. convert and that was that's what came over from your book and in, and also from a lot of the stuff that i read about this and to me that's sort of shocking because it 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 justifies the sort of brutality you're talking about it just yeah, you know everything everything is okay the means are not important as long as you are looking at the end so whatever you do to get to that end is fine that's that was her mantra and she's i mean she's she's she went around the world um with a with sort of a begging bowl in some yeah. respects and she she was given literally millions and millions and millions of dollars how much of that went to the poor well, I, very little i think probably less than 10 percent. mostly it was uh, for again for religion she built huge nunneries and brothers homes and sisters homes and then there she had an obsession with having travel uh the moving the nuns from a to b very frequently um, in Calcutta itself, there are huge nunneries which, has no, which have no uh, uh, charitable functions. They're fully religious uh, places, and then they recruit from the villages. Not from, actually, Calcutta state, West Bengal. Very few of the nuns the Mother Teresa has come from the local state. Right. Probably 1% to 2%, if that. Most of them come from South India and from Bihar. So consequently, none of the nuns can speak the local language, uh, and so that, yeah, that 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 is that is a big hindrance in in them helping the local people because they have uh, no local knowledge. They have no. They haven't got the local language. They're very aloof, and also they are not even interested in in helping people that much because they know that they are there to make a living. And it is well known, it's been unbelievable again, but the, when uh, donations come from abroad in kind, like shirts and food and baby food and toys, they're sold by the nuns in the uh, second-hand market in Gakata, almost instantaneously. Just to get money. Um, I mean, that, that money, how much money do you think went to the Vatican? I don't. I actually don't know. I, I'm not an accountant, and I just couldn't by myself look into that money angle. But I would think that about fifty percent went to the Vatican. Well, her main bank is the Vatican, Vatican Bank again, yeah. which is the scan, scandalous and scandal-ridden bank. She had she has some accounts in the Indian banks as well for day-to-day -day things. But the, all the uh, international donations, she could she could keep in the UK bank or even an Indian bank, which are which are pretty stable. Uh, but she kept in the Vatican Bank, so nobody knows what what goes on there except for lots of scandalous things. Because the actual, the actual, uh, I mean, there's been a lot about the the, the sort of care of people within uh, those homes that uh, indeed, yeah, and the selling of and the selling of orphans. This is another thing. Tell me about tell me about this because this this again is something that sort of blows your mind when you when you read indeed, about it. Absolutely, I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean. The thing is that when they there was a there was a program on Kakara TV in uh, two thousand and four, there was this boy who was adopted uh, to Belgium uh, to a Catholic couple. His uh, uh, he was sold for 
one lakh rupees, hundred thousand rupees, in a lot of money in those days, even in pounds and dollars. Yeah. And his sister was sold also. Uh, one of the sisters, and he he was when he got looked at his papers, he he found that he was classed as an orphan, that he had nobody, but he knew that obviously he was adopted at a, at a at a older age. He was seven or eight at the time. Right. And he and he remembered obviously he had an older sister. He had a grand he had grand grandmother. So he was a quite appalled. So he 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 kept coming back to Calcutta and trying to find his sister, saying that he, because he was convinced the sister was probably still alive. And then he um, then he managed to look at his papers in Mother Teresa's so-called orphanage, and he realized that everything had, had been falsified and 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 false signatures and uh, his antecedents and his family tree was falsified as well. And he had effectively was sold to a Catholic couple. So that was a, and this uh, program was shown two or three times on uh, on Calcutta TV. But because Indians are scared of Mother Teresa and scared of the Catholic Church and scared of West, essentially, nobody did anything. Nobody took any notice. Nobody, people chose to ignore it. But then uh, three years back, it suddenly came out that they were selling babies and orphans on a very large scale. And uh, Missions of Charity was one of the biggest uh, uh, sellers of orphans and babies. So the cases are still going on. Unfortunately, the nun herself, the Nobel Prize winner, she's dead, but she was in it hand and glove. Hand in glove, she was involved in the selling of babies and orphans. So that, that had gone on for 30 years. Can you believe this? I mean, it's unbelievable that people are people have chosen to respect and adulate such a person. Now it's very difficult to do anything uh, dodgy with uh, adoptions in India because the law is very strict at the moment. Yeah, yeah. you have to first uh, offer the child to a to an Indian couple, and um, even and after you have uh, gone through all the options of adoption in India, only then you can adopt to a uh, non-Indian couple. So now it's and they have and um, the missionaries of charity have stopped adopting adopting anyway because of all the scandals, etc. And then also they said that because. Now, Indian government, I think, has technically allowed same-sex adoption. They said it's against God's will, so we're not going to do it. So this is this is uh, Mother Teresa's another legacy: selling of children and orphans. It sort of blows your mind that they, uh, there must have been people within the church who knew this was going on, and it. it Wherever, wherever you come from, wherever your your background, whatever your you know, whether you're a non-theist, I know, but exactly. It's got to it's got to cut against the grain, surely. Yeah, why would not somebody of the thousands and hundreds of people who came across this organization, you know, raise some kind of, I know, I don't know what's the politically correct word now. This oh, whistleblower, sorry. Yeah, whistleblow. Uh, at some point, nobody did. And Mother Teresa's nuns were obviously instrumental in in all this. They were the minions. She was she was the one who was giving the orders. But they are very uneducated. Uh, they are very uneducated women. She chose women of that sort of, of that uh, uh, kind. And well, I, I saw you on a TV program, um, a British TV program, Sunday morning. Yeah. Uh, where you was talking about this, and there was uh, a nun, a current nun. I mean, this is probably a few years ago now, but there's a current yeah. nun, and um, 
she was protect, or she was talking about the uh, the the whole process, um, Mother Teresa, uh, all those all those things, and and, and protecting the Catholic Church and saying that this didn't happen. You, you, the things that you were talking about, the, some of the things you were speaking about today, was they, they just deny it, and it almost seems like they're sort of brainwashed into thinking a certain way. And, yeah, and, and completely blinkered to the horror behind it. I know it's uh, Indians are the same. I mean, not I'm talking about non-Christian Indians. They are totally blinkered. They're not, uh, and they're very scared. I don't know why they're always very scared about everything. They're particularly scared about Mother Teresa and her uh, and her connections. Um, they're Indians. Uh, the subcontinent people see conspiracy in everything. So, if they if if Mother Teresa is so powerful. She has a huge network of conspiracy behind her. So if I say something, something might happen to me. And it's uh, that sort of mentality, really. Well, so I mean, I, let's it's very talk about some of those those connections, Arup. Um, people like baby Dr. Valier. Yeah. I mean, how can someone like that, who's, put, who's portrayed as, you know, uh, uh, well, how she is, being in contact, I mean, 1980, that she 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 got the Haitian Legion of Honor Award from Baby Doc, you know, and Baby Doc was is known to have sort of killed and tortured like thirty thousand. No, he used to kill his opponents and feed them to the dogs. Sometimes <laughs> he used to put them in the same cage as wolves and dogs and things, so that he and he could he would watch. Uh, and don't forget Imelda Marcos, one of our, another of our biggest donors and friends. I mean, these are the sort of people who loved her and she loved loved them. And Ronald because, Reagan, even you know, yeah. I mean, he, he he never made a made any uh, secret of the fact that he hated the poor, and he loved the rich. Uh, and Mother Teresa was all absolutely fond of him, without any compunction, without anything. Uh, Pinochet, she never actually, I think, I don't think she ever met Pinochet, but Pinochet was a fan, also. So every, anybody uh, who would be, uh, it doesn't matter how brutal you could would be. As long as uh, you, you are a strong Catholic and you oppose ab abortion, that's fine. There was an American priest, Californian priest called Donald Maguire, who was uh, uh, Teresa. I think he used to take confessions from Teresa nuns. He was associated with the mission of charity, and he was uh, rumbled up as a, a pedophile. So he was convicted and charged. And Mother Teresa wrote a letter saying that you know he should be reinstated and allowed to. Uh, Allowed to restart, resume work as a priest. So this is this is a sort. Of, I mean, she knew very well that what he had done. And now I think he's, he died in prison, or he's still maybe still in prison. This it's, it's almost as if like the, the 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 church has no care for humanity at all. Absolutely, as long as it propagates the Catholic Church. Absolutely, Mother. That was Mother Teresa's remit completely. That as long as you uh, propagate the political views of the Catholic Church, I. Either we are the standard bearer of, of world, whatever, the morals of the world. And however you do it, it doesn't matter. You, you, we just have to go, and go out and do it. And justify the means. She was also sort of um, uh, in alignment with Charles Keating, um, who's, you know, he, he was probably the biggest fraudster in American history at the time. At, at, until that time he was. Yeah. Now I think it's that man... Uh, went to prison uh, with uh, 2008 after him. But until that time, and also Charles Keating 
what his his uh, modus operandi was he would defraud very uh, modest customers like he would you know carpenters and builders and plumbers he would he would take their money and uh, just run away with it so he uh, he he gave his um private jet to theresa and yeah. she would quite happily hop around in it uh, when keating was arrested the new york's district attorney wrote to her saying that would you be kind enough to at least consider refunding some of the money um uh, that keating gave you i think i think he gave her 75 million or something no sorry i can't remember in those days probably 2 or 3 million yeah uh, so would you be kind enough to refund some of the money so that the small investors can be reimbursed and they never got a reply so but when the court when the case went to court uh, lance ito with the judge who heard um, that famous uh, you know that man who killed the wife the chappy um, anyway so he was very he's very famous he became a very famous judge and sat on a very famous case subsequently lancito yeah. so mother teresa wrote a personal letter to the judge lancito saying that uh, can you let charles keating go because he's a great man and he's a god's man and he 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 loves god and loves me so don't don't punish him so this is this is how she was no no it is it is amazing really isn't it no ethics no morals nothing so the the other thing that I wanted to um sort of talk to you a little bit about was um the the sainthood or the beatification and the canonization of mother teresa um and she was brought in as devil's advocate now i've known that phrase for many many years you know where if you're a devil's advocate you sort of take an opposite position that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but this is an actual official vatican position yeah yeah, um, yeah, and it was yourself and Christopher Christopher Hitchens that became devil's advocate in her canonization. Yeah. So, can you tell me a little bit of background about how? Because this fascinates me. How this actually the process? Well, yeah, it was. I think it went on for more than two days. It was a whole series of hundreds of questions about her and what I thought about her and what she did, what she didn't do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it was heard by a canon law expert, a lady. I can't remember her name. Um, and the questions i have reproduced some of the questions on my in my book as far as i could remember because it was pre camera phone days so otherwise i could have taken picture yeah so uh, it was um, yeah it was fact some factual questions some subjective answers that kind of thing but the ultimate was do you think mother teresa should be a saint saying that i think that was towards the towards the end i said yes of course she should be a catholic saint the catholic saint is somebody who respect or abides by catholic dictum and dictat and hierarchy and follows the rules of the catholic church which to me are quite negative and odious but she did that very faithfully so she should be a catholic saint but if you ask me whether she should be called a saint in the secular broad sense definitely not mm. yeah she lied extensively she lied every day of her life for the last 30 years of her existence she didn't care about the poor she deliberately reused needles she lied in the uh, nobel prize acceptance speech about the number of people she helped she converted surreptitiously people who were semi conscious so definitely in the broader sense she shouldn't be called a saint but obviously 
you Catholic Church is a company or, or an organization, and somebody who serves that organization uh, with exemplary uh, devotion, they have a right to make them uh, their biggest uh, asset. And that asset is called a saint. So, the, you know, so go ahead and make it a saint. Is it, I mean, she's been sort of famously quoted as saying things like, um, you know, when people are in pain, they, they weren't given painkillers or very, very no, light no. painkillers. And she, she said, pain means Jesus is near you. Yeah, it's kissing you. Yeah. You know, it's kissing you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's know. Grief, doesn't it? And, and people would go completely wow over it as if it's a great thing to say. But then uh, if you look at her own self, she went to the best hospitals in the world. Yeah, yeah, very In Calcutta, she went to Woodlands Hospital, Bellevue Clinic. Uh, in the wider world, she went to La Jolla, California. She went to Scripps Clinic, very expensive. In, in Italy, she went to the Gemelli Hospital in Rome. So for herself, nothing was spared. Uh, but for her residents, nothing was given. Yes, yes, incredible. I mean, there was a, a quote uh, that uh, Hitchens put in um, to one of his writings, one of his essays or whatever, um, that he said it was by talking to her that he discovered that, uh, and she assured him that she wasn't working to alleviate poverty. She was working to expand the number of Catholics. Um, the world. She said, I'm not a social worker. I don't do it for that reason. I do it exactly. for Christ. I do it for the church. And it sort of says it all, really, doesn't it? She said that many times. Yeah. Yeah, that look, you know, why, why why are you looking at my charitable functions? Because I'm not a charity, I'm not a charity worker. I'm not a social worker. I'm a religious person. And people thought that she was. Unfortunately, people actually didn't look. Although that was the truth, people thought she was so humble that she was just underplaying her charity, and that was even a greater sign of her humility and her charitable work. Yeah, so that's how it was interpreted. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it is an absolutely fascinating story, and uh, I encourage everybody to read your book. Um, well, thank you. The untold told story. It's, it is a it's a fascinating insight into it, and uh, it will change your mind about Mother Teresa. And if you're brave, and also, I think it'll it should change people's mind about media and and reportage yeah. and journalism. I when I first uh, wrote the book, when I first came out, then I thought that it should be a book that journalists should read. That how. You you should approach a, approach any issue with a slightly open mind. Yeah, and now it's much better. I mean, I must say that people these days are journalists are much more open minded. But the, you know, the Mother Teresa bandwagon and the publicity mostly came from US. Mm. And I think personally, many US journalists who did come to Calcutta and look at the work, they were quite horrified. But because their sponsors and their editors and their newspaper houses were dependent on advertisements and sponsors and their owners. Uh, they just couldn't do anything. Like, um, I remember reading an article in the Ladies' Home Journal, which, is, which was very, very big. It was, I think, a bit like Cosmopolitan, actually, in those days. But Daphne Barak, who was quite a well-known um, journalist at the time, she... Uh, she was, uh, it was quite obvious, read, even reading through the um, lines, that she was pretty unimpressed by the Theresa thingy. But she just, she just couldn't say anything properly. Uh, so so that, 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 that's something I hope has changed in the last 10 years.
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, if anybody's listening to this who is uh, a supporter of Mother Teresa or a theist that uh, um, believes in what Mother Teresa does or has done, because um, it's been like 23 years now since uh, since she died, I'm uh, yeah. still talking about it because it's it's a, a big thing. But I think what I want is for people to you know to to read your book, go and get it, read your book, uh, understand the the background of it. Indeed, and, yeah, absolutely. And sort of understand. I mean, you know, yesterday I read a, read an article on a website called townhall.com. It may be a right wing right wing website. I'm not sure. And the whole the, the the headline was. We have to remember that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was no Mother Teresa. Yesterday, yeah. can you believe that? I know, I know, I know. It sort of blows you away, doesn't it? It's this, exactly. this, this legacy. And this is one of the reasons why I say, you know, it's it's you know, it's it, it's important to understand. It's important to understand what her true motives were. Correct. Um, because it does, and, it does make you. It does change your mind about this concept of what Mother Teresa was, and sort of blows away those cobwebs. No, but this is important because the, the 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 author of this piece about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she probably was born after she, Mother Teresa died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So still, she had this total metaphor or figure of speech ingrained in her mind yeah. that she used it in the headline. Yeah, it it does it does sort of blow you away. Listen, Rupert, it's been brilliant talking to you. Um, we've come to sure. our little section here. It's been fantastic talking to you. Yep, thanks, Rupert. That was the wonderful Rupert Chatterjee. Okay, that's it for today. If you want to follow the podcast, then make sure you jump over to the Atheist Alliance International uh, YouTube channel. Subscribe and hit the notification bell. And if you're watching on YouTube, hello. Um, next time, my special guest is going to be Thomas Sheedy. Now, he's the founder of Atheists for Liberty. And we're going to be talking about his organization and his views on the state of atheism in a very divided and divisive world. So tune in to the next AAI podcast. If you want to support Atheist Alliance International, then pop over to our website, that's the atheistalliance.org, and consider donating and becoming a member. We can only carry out the important work that we do with your help, and the, the work we do is obviously assisting atheists in desperate situations all around the world, and we can only do it genuinely, genuinely with your help. And uh, so we'll see you next time, and remember, we're risen apes, not fallen angels. See you next time. Atheist Alliance International Podcast with Andy Phillips.